Welcome, everyone, to the launch of a new book called The Technological Revolution in Financial Services by Professor Michael King and Richard Nesbitt. Financial services are going through a massive global transformation. Structural changes are being driven by changes in regulation, technology, and demographics. And this combination is changing the competitive landscape by lowering barriers to entry and increasing competition from outside the industry. It is a time of great innovation. And this book comes at an incredibly uh, timely time to be able to assess the impact of that. We have the two, the authors of the report are with us and they will present uh, a summary of the book and then we will turn to a, an impressive panel who will uh, discuss some of its main themes. Let me introduce the authors very quickly. Michael King is the Lansdowne Chair in Finance at the University of Victoria's Gustafsson School of Business. Uh, prior to that, he co-founded the Scotiabank Digital Banking Lab, Canada's first fintech research centre. And he is a co-author of the report with Richard Nesbitt. Richard, uh, besides being a distinguished alumna of the LSE, uh, is also an adjunct professor at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. And he's working with us at LSE as chair of a new research centre called the Inclusion Initiative. Richard was chief operating officer at CIBC until September 2014, and prior to that was Chief Executive Officer of the Toronto Stock Exchange. So let me start by asking Michael and Richard to give us a summary of their report before I introduce you to the panel, and we'll open it up for questions and answers thereafter. Michael and Richard, over to you. Thank you, Manoush. Um, as, as proud alumni of the LSE, both of us, Richard and I are very pleased to be here and to thank the Inclusion Project and the, our fellow panelists for joining us today to share their, their knowledge and experience on fintech and financial inclusion. Um, we continue to learn from experts like uh, this panel about how uh, startups and, and financial applications are really solving pain points for many different types of people and different types of customers. Um, before we begin, Rich and I would like to you know, share a few insights and set the stage, if you like, by uh, highlighting uh, some key takeaways from our edited volume, which looks at the evolution and uh, how the future landscape of banking will, will turn out over the coming decade. And then after our opening remarks, the panel will share their insights and answer the audience's questions, which I see are already coming in. Welcome to everyone who's here uh, on the many ways that, that technology is really making finance more inclusive. Okay. So this is not your typical academic volume. Uh, there's 15 chapters that were all written by subject matter experts, like the, the panelists we have today. Um, and the chapters were written by FinTech founders, uh, by bankers, regulators, consultants, and okay, a, a, couple of, a couple of academics who really share their views on where the industry is headed. Uh, these contributors are actually based in Canada, the UK, and Europe, as well as the United States. Richard? And we started this project back in 2017. Um, I was the CEO of the Global Risk Institute then. Michael was running the uh, Scotia Digital Banking Lab uh, in association with Ivy Business School. So uh, having known each other, we began debating how fintech was changing the financial services industry. And we decided, and we don't always agree on everything, but we agree that it was changing the financial services industry. We decided to get a bunch of experts together and we organized a one day conference in Toronto 
called the future of financial services. There was very positive feedback from that event, and it convinced us we really should share these insights with a broader audience. Yeah, so it was very clear coming out of that, uh, that, act, that event that financial services was going through a, a global transformation. And this was not like uh, other sort of cyclical changes that we'd seen in the industry. This was very structural, and it was really being driven by three forces. Regulations following the global financial crisis, technological innovations, and, and demographic change. And these, as Manoush pointed out, these changes were really changing the competitive landscape by both lowering barriers to entry and by increasing uh, competition from outside of the financial services industry. So at one end of the spectrum, we had fintech startups. Um, and at the other end, we had very large non-financial technology companies, uh, which may be called tech bins, or you may think of them as big tech that were moving into financial services. And in the middle, we had many innovative digital-only banks, as well as insurance companies, asset managers, and mature fintech companies that had been around for some time, such as PayPal. So these new entrants were all leveraging technology to gain a foothold in financial services, with many of them following actually the, 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 the strategy of disruption that was outlined by Harvard professor Clayton Christensen of of really getting a foothold at the bottom of the market and by targeting underserved customers. And so there was a lot of change happening, going off in many directions, happening over a pretty short space of time. Uh, and we needed to really provide a clear structure for our readers. So we asked each of the contributors to answer four questions. One, what are the structural forces transforming banking and financial services? Two, how are these forces changing the competitive landscape and the value, value proposition for customers? Three, how should incumbents adapt their strategies and business models to respond to these challenges? And four, what actions do senior leaders and executives of financial institutions need to take to be successful in this new environment? Our joint working hypothesis was that traditional banks, asset managers, and insurers will continue to dominate financial services but the most, success, most successful incumbents will partner with fintech startups to provide a better experience to customers at a lower cost. Yeah, that's right. So, so rather than being threatened by fintech startups, which was the narrative that we heard maybe uh, five to 10 years ago, our conclusion is that banks are more likely to be threatened by global technology companies, such as the Chinese tech firms Alibaba and Tencent on one hand, or the big tech companies like Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, and here in Canada, Shopify. And these tech companies have platform ecosystems that are embedding financial services, including payments, lending, investing, and insurance. And we believe that these are the companies that are gonna be the real threats to incumbents over the coming decade. So in the concluding <laughs> chapter, let me just jump to the, the you know, what we found. Um, we, we basically draw together the views of all of our different contributors, um, and they left us with a view of where the industry is heading from a more uh, strategic point of view, and we, we highlight six key takeaways. Now, we're not going to share all of them today. We're just going to share a couple of them to whet your appetite. Richard? Okay, so first of all, conclusion, uh, technology is not a strategy. It's a tool to help you achieve your strategic goals. Strategy is the answer to three questions. Where is the organization today? Where does it want to go in the future? And then how will you get there? 
Technology can provide better tools for pursuing this strategy. But technological innovation is not the end strategy in itself. Technology does not provide a sustainable competitive advantage. It is widely available and can be copied by competitors who are fast followers. The biggest barrier to entry in banking is not technology or even regulation, but access to customers. A second key takeaway is relevant for the panel today on financial inclusion, and that's really that trust in financial services is paramount, and it has to be supported by data security and by privacy. So the most enduring impact of the global financial crisis was really the damage it caused to trust in banks and other incumbents. And this loss of trust is what opened the door to new entrants from outside the industry. Now, trust in financial services is really intertwined, as we know, with cybersecurity and data privacy. And cybersecurity has become really the key operational risk facing many financial institutions. Now, we argue in the book that their mindset has to shift from if we are hacked, if we are hacked, to when we are hacked. And finding a trust, disclosing it, and dealing with it immediately, and minimizing the impact on customers is going to be critical. Now, another big issue which has uh, raised its heads is data privacy. Consumers and privacy advocates are acutely aware of the mixed incentives of advertising-based business models used by online platforms such as Facebook and Google. So this is one area where banks or other, other um, new entrants can really regain or build trust by stepping in to protect consumers' data, their privacy, as well as their identity. So third conclusion, regulation and risk management remain pillars of financial services. So regulation is not going away, nor should we want it to. Leading banks actually support higher regulatory requirements to weed out bad actors. We want to see regulation extended to all fintechs and to the shadow banking system. Maintaining a level playing field and avoiding regulatory arbitrage are important. Fintechs and other alternative financial providers need to be held to the same regulatory standard as incumbents. Effective risk management across the business cycle will continue to be a driver of bank success. Financial incumbents possess this expertise. Fintechs sometimes do not. Fintechs and other uh, new entrants inevitably face the same need to invest in risk management and compliance to meet regulatory requirements. So that observation leads to sort of our uh, final point I'll make today, which is that we believe that bank partnerships between banks and fintechs, startups, will be the winning combination and will deliver a superior experience for their customers. Ultimately, we don't think that these two are rivals. We think that they can combine their respective strengths and the ones that do that will be the most successful in the coming decade. You know, banks, on one hand, have large numbers of customers, expertise in risk management and compliance, and they also have funding and they have scale. But they're just simply too product-centric. Okay? They view the world in terms of deposits, loans, credit cards, investments. And they view technology as a tool that they can use to reduce costs and to increase profitability while meeting increased regulatory compliance. Now that is not the way that fintechs look at it. Fintech startups are better at understanding what the customer needs are and their journey. And they're using technology as well as design thinking uh, to develop really innovative solutions. And we're gonna hear about some of them in a moment from our panelists. They're really employing agile teams and disruptive business models. And they are very customer centric, not product centric. 
And what I mean by that is they're really leveraging technology to do one thing, which is to solve pain points for customers and to give them an experience that's better, faster, cheaper, and, and more available and more inclusive. So again, just to summarize, the, the, the real successful strategy we think is for incumbents to partner with these fintechs to provide a better experience to a broader range of customers at a lower cost. So Richard, do you want to hand off to our panel? Oh, I see. I think we've lost Richard Manush. Uh, he seems to have. Oh, okay. I'm yeah. so sorry. Uh, well, that's right. I'm having a little uh, Wi Fi uh, issue. So uh, I think that's it for us today. Thank you for your attention. Now I'm going to turn it back to Baroness Shafiq for our panel discussion. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Uh, that was great. That was. I'm very impressed how you managed that duet. It was. Uh, it was incredibly well synchronized. Very impressive. So let me now turn to uh, to our panel, and we've got three wonderful panelists who will discuss the issues raised by this book. We have Gela Boscovich, who is a self proclaimed fintech fanatic and founder of Femtech Global, a network de dedicated to challenging the status quo and improving inclusiveness and diversity. She's also head of Europe for the Financial Data and Technology Association. We, then we'll have we'll hear from Vinit Malhotra, who is managing director and head of retail and alternative solutions group at CIBC Capital Markets. He's also head of Simply, an online Canadian banking service for customers, and he's also uh, involved in the retail solution manufactures and delivers global product market products, including FX, fixed income, precious metals, and so on. Uh, we'll then also hear from Brenda Trinodon, who is a partner at PwC, leading the inclusive culture, diversity, and purpose consulting practice. She's also global chair of the 30% Club, which has had great success in increasing representation of women on boards around the world. She's also been listed as one of the 100 most influential women in finance for three years running and was recently awarded a CBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours List for services to financial, the financial sector and gender equality. I am going to start with a question for Gela, which is, what is the role of fintech in promoting financial and how does it readiness and regulation. And then I'm going to turn to the other panelists to give us a sense of their experience with seeing how fintech companies uh, promoted financial inclusion. So, Gela, over to you. Thank you, Baroness. I think we need to start off with the notion of policy around fintech and what policy actually enables fintech to do. And I speak specifically of something that was passed back in 2013 in Europe called the Payment Services Directive 2. This is the formal legislation that opened up the market to competition. And here in the UK, we adopted that with the Competition and Markets Authority order around retail banking. And it mandated that banks open up their technology stacks, but also open up the data to which they are custodians. That's your data. That's my data. It's the data of the small businesses that operate in this market. And make that data accessible to alternative financial solution providers, i.e. fintech. At that very moment, back in 2013, we saw a real shift in how Europe specifically started to look at these emerging technologies and how they would start to enable 
provision of financial services in an alternative way, but also leveraging data. And that leveraging of data actually reduces the barrier to entry for a number of different people into financial services. First and foremost, it's about providing a digital identity that isn't necessarily accessible to those who don't have passports or driver's license or other ID cards. It was a way to allow people to enter a digital space by not having to produce a bunch of documentation. We can look at that actually in India as a perfect example under the Aadhaar system. Aadhaar is a digital identity that's provided by the central government that requires merely a biometric, a fingerprint and a retinal scan, as well as a number that assigns that particular individual an identity in the system. It doesn't require that they have birth certificates or that they can produce a doctor's note that can testify to the fact that they exist. Everyone was enrolled irrespective of their documentation or not. That cleared the first barrier to making sure that people had digital identity that then could allow them to enroll in systems that they previously had no access to, financial services being the primary one. And if we look at the Indian government also building their payment system on top of that, it means that micropayments, tiny, tiny little little payments that drive transactions, that drive commerce, that drive uh, communities, all of those could actually be done in a formal way without having to have a bank account. But there would be a record, there would be a credit history that was built, and that started to develop something that that somebody who'd been excluded from the system didn't have before, which is an actual history within the context of financial services, irrespective of them being uh, formal or not. We can also look at that sort of system in Kenya. You may not have heard of it, but there's an incredible uh, payment system in Kenya that is built on the back of a mobile phone. It's called M-Pesa. And they've literally turned mobile minutes into currency. So you didn't have to have a formal bank account in order to be part of the payment system or to pay for goods or services. You merely had to have access to a regular old Nokia phone, a regular mobile phone with a USSD card, not a smartphone. That literally took down walls and it changed the nature of the Kenyan economy. It also managed to include another 60% of people who had never been formally included in the financial system into a more formalized payment system. It also meant that women for the first time were able to have a sort of bank account without the written permission of husband or father. And this meant that social change was absolutely transformed and actually accelerated. And the Kenyan economy has grown by leaps and bounds precisely because of an alternative approach based on technology, based on a FinTech, managed to reduce the barrier to entry for a number of people. And we look across all of Asia and Michael mentioned earlier Tencent and Alibaba and Alipay. This has also been transformative to get other people who have been formally excluded into the system. There are lower proofs of of personhood, digital identity being one of them, but there's also not a requirement for a certain deposit in order to open a regular account. This wasn't necessarily driven by policy, but it was actually driven by policy in Europe that reduced those barriers. We're now talking about a very interesting movement in creating a standard interoperable digital identity. For example, here in the UK, the Department of Culture, Sports and Media is undertaking Uh, a digital identity framework and has actually published their first briefing on what that framework and that ecosystem looks like. All fintechs are involved in this and they will be contributing to the directory services and the trust framework that establish a digital identity. BASE, which is the Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, is also framing out legislation that would allow for digital identity to be acceptable across all financial institutions. That means if you don't have a passport, you don't have an identity card, you're still able to join, get a current account, make payments, and start to transact in a 
in a traditional system that has previously been inaccessible to you. But we're also looking beyond just getting people involved in the system. We're looking at products and services that are very specific to marginalized and underbanked or underserved communities. I speak, for example, around the FCAs, the Financial Conduct Authorities Initiative a couple of years ago, around money and mental health. And it was a tech sprint. If you've never been involved in a tech sprint or if you, this is a new concept to you, it's pretty much a hackathon. But there's a thesis or a hypothesis given. A bunch of techies come together. Uh, you don't necessarily have to be a coder, but you have to be involved in technology. And we drew from banks, we drew from fintechs, we drew from a number of members of the community. All of them were looking at potential solutions that would help people who are experiencing mental health crises better manage their money from uh, the manic high overspending to missed payments or missed bills during depression because it's just too hard to engage. And let's put it this way. One out of four people experience a mental health crisis right at this moment. So for the number of us on this call, we're at what? We're around 250 people. 20% of us will be experiencing a mental health crisis at this very moment. But it doesn't mean that those who are not experiencing that won't escape it because at one point in everyone's life, they will have a mental health issue. Now, manage, you're managing your money during a, a mental health crisis can be incredibly difficult. And yet the regulators recognize that. And they said, we don't want to exclude these people from financial health, financial wellness, or an ability to access their funds when and if they need them. And instead, they looked at solutions around how to manage that for the most vulnerable amongst society. All of those things go into creating an ecosystem and a framework that does not exist within the traditional financial uh, models and allows for those who are underserved to be part of it, not only from a technological perspective, but from actual product and service perspective. So if we're looking at putting uh, limits on your spending during certain times of the day when you know you may be more prone to looking at late night shopping on Amazon, I would be one of those people, that we can actually put limits on those things. If you have a carer who actually does need to have access and needs to serve as a proxy to help manage your money, being able to give that consent and put those permissions and parameters around that, those are critically important, but they don't necessarily come easy in a traditional financial institution. So allowing those sorts of technology technological tools to serve very specific niche cases, that's called inclusion. And that's what technology can do. And I think we're seeing some evidence of that in the market today. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. Let me turn to Vineet and then Brenda to give us some examples of where they think fintech can contribute to inclusion. Yeah. So, so you know, Richard touched on something in his opening address that I think is really important. I, and and myself running a digital uh, mobile bank in Canada would wholeheartedly agree. We we would say we're setting the strategy on the business. Inclusion would be a component of the strategy we're focused on for the future. And then we're trying to find that network or diaspora of tech companies that can help us fulfill that strategy. And so I think where we set the direction and strategy, then we're trying to find the partners to help build. And, you know, you know, Michael touched on in the beginning too, look, at the end of the day, does the future look more and more like financial institutions partnering with fintechs? I think for sure it does, because I think what we've seen out of fintechs is not this, this creativity or this idea of challenging the status quo, which frankly, I think, in my opinion, even though I sit inside a financial institution, was a good kind of kick in the rear end for us to think 
forward thinking also. And so, so we're using that as a means now to look at fintechs and help us partner and ideas. And we kind of set down that path a few years ago, but a few of the things that have come out um, in the movement of money globally would be in a good example in our digital mobile bank. We've partnered with fintechs to create access to kind of the real-time payment clearing systems around the world. Then we may be able to bring that product back to our client base, typically the immigrant client base at uh, Simply Financial, for them to be able to leverage those solutions in a very low-cost means and a very quick-to-market quick uh, uh, fashion. Now, we could have tried to embark and build on that, probably, and it probably would have taken us many times the cost it would have historically uh, and would have been difficult for us to maintain the platform for the future. I would say it's it's a perfect marrying of solutions where we look at a, at a, at a few fintechs who were able to backstop that solution for us and we were able to scale a business out from there. And, 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 and just to add to that, as of most recent, you know, Canada, uh, I don't think is, is a unique country, but it is a country that grows 100% on immigration. So again, and we'll bring it back to this inclusivity piece, but but 100% of population growth for the future will be on immigration. We're trying to work with tech companies to find solutions to cater to that immigrant population even before they come to Canada, to be able to give them the right financial assets when they get here. Historically, a new immigrant would come to Canada no matter what their net worth was, no matter what their education was, no matter what their background was, and they could get maybe at best a $500 credit card limit. We're trying to find ways today and we're doing it today and where we're partnering with, with fintechs out there so we can decision those clients before they come, use social means and other uh, data inputs to get them assets when they get here uh, that are more tied to the type of uh, client and profile they'd be. Thank you, Vinit. Brenda. Thank you very much, Manish. Um, well, I'll say first off, I think everyone else on the panel is more of a fintech expert than I am. So it's so certainly... Although I spent almost 25 years um, in, the, in the financial services space, I wouldn't say I'm a fintech expert, but I spend a lot of time looking at inclusion. And, and certainly, um, I think there are lots of great examples of new fintechs, especially in the UK, that have been starting up that have promoted more financial inclusion, like Monzo, you know, allowing people with no fixed address to, to open accounts or um, you know, open works, you know, partnering with, with debt advice, fintech, Tully, um, and step change, developing services for people to help with their finances. And, and even, um, HMT, you know, allowing people to make more affordable credit, um, for people on low incomes and allowing rent payments to, to help with credit scores. So I think there, there are lots of good examples of how we can see fintech really helping inclusion overall. But I think we also have to be really mindful of some of the um, pitfalls of fintech and of AI and, and algorithms and things and, and really relying on data to help with decision making. You know, I think probably a lot of us have read recently about the algorithms in Spotify, for example, really bringing up um, male artists much more than female artists in, in playlists. And I think, you know, most people will have heard about the very, very low numbers in terms of Silicon Valley and venture cap, you know, going much more to men than women. But also, I think that there's been um, lots of examples of, 
you know, banks and, and other financial services companies relying on past data to make credit decisions or lending decisions and things. And, and that there's a real fear that unless we spend enough time really checking and, and overseeing these things, we can be amplifying some of the, the exclusion and biases that, that already exist. And so I, I think it's important that, you know, we don't, we don't move too quickly um, by looking at, you know, machine learning and, and AI and things going into these, these new fintech companies to, to generate profits and things without putting in place, you know, enough testing and, and making sure that we go back and make sure that there aren't unintended consequences. So, you know, we, we would talk about making sure that all of these companies are inclusive by design. So rather than thinking at the end, oh gosh, you know, let's check this and see if it's working, right from the get-go, think about, you know, who do we have to be considering? Um, taking a really enterprise-wide approach to thinking about product design, you know, the marketing, who are the customers, you know, every time we design something, looking at is is this going to actually benefit everyone? Um, what are the unintended consequences? And, and so I think, interestingly, um, there was a great review done recently by a friend of mine, Ron Khalifa, and it was the, the Khalifa review in, into UK um, fintech. And one of the things he was looking at was saying to the government, could they consider offering incentives to fintechs to focus on particular demographics or areas to promote financial inclusion? So, so I, I think, you know, it's really important that, that as we move forward in this, we think about women. You know, we know that often women are, are underserved by financial services companies. Um, you know, we think about um, visible minorities and, and think about things like facial recognition software, which many fintechs use. And often they, they only recognize white faces, for example. So, so do we have enough diversity in those fintechs and those teams that are designing and building to ensure that we are actually thinking about all these things? Um, so I guess... I don't want to be the, the negative part of the panel, but I guess um, I think there's there's lots to celebrate, but there's also lots that we need to consider. And 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 I think, you know, we need to make sure that there are enough people, whether they're regulators um, or companies themselves or, or investors, really challenging these companies and making sure that they are truly inclusive. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, just to pick up where you left off, Brenda, just a question really to all of the panel. Um, I think Richard and Michael both talked about the importance of, of trust in financial services and the, some of the bits of financial services that have focused on excluded groups have developed alternative mechanisms of trust. I happen to sit on the board of Brock, the Bangladeshi Rural Advancement Committee, which reaches poor women in Bangladesh. And when I ran DFID, I, we were the first investors in M-Pesa in Kenya, which has now grown into this massive African fintech. Um, but they, uh, they built trust through things like credit circles, of having borrowers know each other and guarantee each other, by having loan officers know individual borrowers by name. Uh, and I just wanted you to talk, want some of you to talk a little bit about trust and technology and how we can keep that aspect of inclusion 
without the kind of biases that Brenda has described. Because if you if you go on past data and past trends, you end up reinforcing past biases. And I just wonder whether any of you would like to comment on how you see that evolving. Maybe start with Michael. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Manoush. Thank you to the other panelists as well for those points. One thing, uh, and, and, and Manoush, this is coming up in a lot of the questions that are coming up in the chat about trust, about security, about regulation. Um, I, there's a whole side to technology that we haven't talked about yet, which is peer-to-peer and, and the ability for individuals to, to, to reach each other without a financial intermediary. And I think uh, crowdfunding is a good example. I mean, you talked about how in uh, microfinance with small communities, people are able to lend to each other. Technology is allowing that to happen. And it's allowing people to basically, um, if you like, um, help those uh, who are most closest to them in their communities, but maybe um, solve this problem of search, solve this problem of, of how to actually, um, you know, get the payments to them or the money they need. And of course, we've seen this in many other ways when it comes to like um, donations, and uh, but it's also helping small businesses. Um, obviously, we haven't used the, the B word yet, blockchain, but you know, there I, is- I was wondering if you were gonna use the there, B word. There are technological <laughs> tools that are trying to replace having a centralized authority to, to create trust. And although they've had some, some real uh, setbacks because they haven't really been widely adopted, there are other very useful use cases where people are able to, to use this both to, to uh, create trust amongst individuals who can't find each other, but also to protect people's identity. And I think digital identity, as, as Gayla talked about, is, is really crucial for people who are vulnerable and for people who want to be included and, and being able to protect people's data so that they're not, um, they can't be cheated, so that they, they can't be scammed or their money stolen is going to be a critical part of what technology can do in the coming decade. So we've got a question from Doris Lau Perry from Surrey, uh, who asks, who will create this digital identity and who owns it and who will be managing it? Would one of you like to take that on? Gail, did you I want would, to? Yeah. I would. I would. I'd be happy to. Um, digital identity will be run by individual states, as in individual governments will actually set up their own frameworks. In the context of the UK, the government will set up the framework, they'll propose a framework, but there'll be multiple actors in that ecosystem. There'll be identity providers, there'll be identity consumers, but at the end of the day, that identity belongs to you. It belongs to me, it's mine, it's yours. That data is yours. And this is based on what's called a consumer data right. Everything about you belongs to you. So it's really about you being in control and you granting the permission and the access to use it. So you'll choose a a trusted identity provider. There'll be multiple providers in the market, um, whatever suits your best need. You'll be the one who then determines who can access attributes of your identity. So identity is actually composed of attributes. That could be your date of birth. That could be where you live, your education, your uh, gender, uh, your ethnicity, you know, whatever it happens to be, your name, for example. All of those attributes are yours. All of them are yours to manage. But all of those attributes also need to have privacy around them. So, for example, one of the things we talk about is proof of age. Say you're going to a nightclub or you want to purchase alcohol or you need to be of a certain age to run for office. Well, whoever is validating that particular age doesn't necessarily need to know your birth date. They don't need to know where you were born or the time that you were born. 
all of which can be part of your traditional identical, um, your, pa your passport or your ID card. All they need to know is that you meet the threshold. You're over 18, you're over 30. And in some cases for children's safe space online, they just need to know that you're under 13. You don't need to offer up any supporting evidence. You'll just have an attestation or a certification that that particular point is true. And then you go along your way. It's basically saying, yes, this person meets the criteria. You don't have to know any of the underlying data. And as identity provider, I'm not going to give that data. I'm just going to give the attestation. So it facilitates privacy. At the same time, it gives you the privilege to access those things that you need and you have permission to do so. Now, there's something that we're all working towards, which is an interoperable, and here's the jargon, sovereign identity. And it's a portable self-sovereign identity so that you can remain you irrespective of where you go. For example, that's when you cross a border, you take a flight to another country, or if you happen to immigrate, that all of your transactional and credit history comes with you, that you still have credit worthiness if you move from the UK to France or from Canada to Mexico, that you still are who you say you are, that all of those points about you that are true remain true, doesn't matter where you are in the world, and that any provider of any service should be able to accept that attestation of your permissions or your, your, your access. Digital identity really is about allowing you to transact in a very safe and secure and private way in the digital space without having to reveal any underlying supporting data. But it does mean that you can do what you need to do with the providers of services that you need to engage with, and you can do it in a safe and secure way. For example, all of your health records should be attached to you, and you should be able to take them to any consultant or any doctor or any provider and your history of what you want to share should remain yours to share. And any identity provider would then help you manage that and the delivery of that data to the, that particular healthcare provider. Same goes for university classes if you're enrolling online or if you're applying for a job or if you're looking to travel or if you're looking to access financial services. Digital identity is a passport. But again, this goes back to how do we provide it in a very safe and secure way? All of that is determined by a framework that allows for individual players, individual providers of different parts of that service to exist in a trusted ecosystem that you can therefore engage with and that any other, uh, anytime you have to prove who you are, the recipient on the other end can accept that. So that's digital identity. And I know that there are cans of worms that you might think about, but this has been thought through by some very smart people. I just happen to get to watch some of this. Um, and all of those particular questions are being thought of by a number of people who've engaged in this over the course of years. So they've taken examples from other countries that have done mass digital identity at scale. And for the UK, it's about making sure that it's culturally relevant to this market, that it serves the needs of the UK population, and that it's done in a trusted framework. So hopefully that gives you an idea of what that, that looks like. Thank you, Galen. Anoush, can I add a little comment on that? Of course. Yeah, thank you. Um, the, uh, a few years ago in a speech, I proposed that uh, from the moment you make your first keystroke in dealing with a commercial entity like a bank, insurance company, or a fintech, that you own that data from the first keystroke, you the, the consumer, and that they would not be allowed to monetize that data or sell that data or use that data in any other way other than what you gave permission to, and that they had to compensate you. You couldn't you couldn't give that away in a uh, 5,000 word uh, terms agreement with uh, the supplier 
to say, yes, I accept that. You, they had to compensate you. Uh, but think about that world. If you shifted to that world today, that you actually have 100% rights to that data as the person entering that data. No one can monetize that data without compensating you. Uh, that's a whole different world. I actually think it's a better world than we have today because today what's going on is is you're, you know it's being uh, marketed and commercialized without your knowledge because I don't know when the last time it was you read one of those uh, when you were signed up to a new site and you had read all those thousands of words there that a lawyer prepared. Uh, and I think that we need far more aggressive legal and constitutional protection of our digital rights. Okay. So we've got another question uh, from Ian Van Zeeland, who's a researcher at Ritter Universitat in Brussels. The question is, bank clients are accustomed to a relatively safe financial environment as it has been heavily regulated in the past. Has this made consumers naive regarding the risks of more open and more open payment ecosystem? Like to take that. Vinit, do you yeah, know? I'm happy to take it. You know, you know, <laughs> I think just generally, broadly speaking, uh, consumers have become more naive as time's gone along with respect to stability of financial ecosystems. I think that they pay less and less attention. Uh, you know, I often use this when I'm talking to more junior staff who were training. I, you know, there was a day and age when you know e-commerce was in its just coming out. And there was a big movement that people said, I'm never going to put my credit card credentials online. Like I'm never doing that. And it wasn't a small percentage of the population. It was a huge percentage of the population. And you fast forward to today and sure, sure. It's obvious that e-commerce is the growing entity of, of any uh, commerce that goes on now globally, but you've had so many cyber attacks of huge proportions like if you want to say target or home depot and people kind of just brush it off the side of their back and kind of continue down their business going forward these days it doesn't it doesn't seem to have impacted people as much and i think and i think and i saw another question on that reel there that says oh are people actually aware of who they're doing business with and who they're contracting it i think it's just you know society's turned to a point where we're more apt to utilize services and utilize things that are more convenient to us. If it's convenient to me, I'm more apt to adopt the service. What's not first and foremost in my mind these days is how much am I going to actually trust the service or trust what Richard was referring to, the underlying use of the data behind it? I, I, I don't think it's as um, thought of in, in, in the consumer's mind first and foremost. I'd like to add that um, if you're concerned about payments and the hacking of payments, for example, payments are incredibly highly regulated. Uh, in open payments, um, we've got, first off, uh, payment initiation providers. They are the fintechs. They are highly regulated. They go through an authorization process with each of the national competent authorities and markets that they serve. There are payment protection obligations that, uh, and there are processes that make you whole if a payment goes wrong. There are also buyer protections that are, that are being discussed and are looked at um, and as, as additional insurance if you're making a purchase from a high risk sort of uh, merchant, for example, airlines. True, true story, I have to go to a funeral and I just got notification this morning, I booked my flights two days ago, one of my flights is canceled. And so 
what are my payment protections according to that? What are my buyer protections according to that? That's a high risk merchant, uh, especially during COVID. But there are protections that are already in place. There are processes that you can follow that are established that allow you to claw back all of the, the money that you've paid or the good and service that you've contracted for because payments are incredibly regulated. And they're even more regulated when we talk about cross-border. If you haven't been aware of anti-money laundering and counter-finance terror uh, requirements, every single payment that you send across border, it doesn't matter if it's for merchant, it doesn't matter if it's to family, all of that gets scrutinized. And then we're talking about big institutions sending money across border. There are incredibly in-depth due diligence requirements that go for uh, for each transaction. You may have uh, heard about the FinCell papers uh, a few months ago. Those were all about the suspicious activity reports on cross-border payments. There are laundry lists of them that, that had not been addressed and that highlighted just how, uh, you know, how much regulation and how many steps are taken um, to scrutinize each transaction. So payments are highly regulated and we have some incredibly adept regulators supervising and enforcing the rules and regulations around them. But again, it comes back to what's convenient for you and how you choose to engage, especially in an e-commerce uh, situation. But there are alternative payment offerings that are now being brought to market that go beyond uh, check, cash, or credit card that are incredibly secure, that are handled inside of the bank's real estate, meaning you actually go inside of the bank portal to pay it, that are already pre-populated, so things can't go wrong, but there's enormous regulation around that instruction on a payment, on a digital payment, that you're very well protected. So a lot of thought, again, has gone onto this, and it's just a matter of, again, as the Baroness actually mentioned, is about building trust. Well, trust is built on top of regulation and rules and having good actors, and those actors are policed. And that's something that the financial services industry will never escape, which is a highly regulated environment. So rest assured that uh, payments are scrutinized beyond belief. It's not just willy-nilly and about the hacking, which is actually the data management on the merchant side. So the targets or say Waitrose got hacked. That's all about Waitrose management of their data. It's not about your payment information data. So two very different things. You've got to keep that in mind. Luz, okay. can I add to that? Of course, Richard. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, please go ahead. Okay, cool. Yeah, so uh, I agree with what Gayla said. It was a great uh, explanation of the protections. That is within the existing financial system structure. As soon as you, and, and by the way, Consumers have a right to believe that their financial transactions are secure and well-regulated, just like they have a right to believe that they, when they go into an office tower that has proper fire safety codes, etc. So they have a right to believe that. Move that out into the cryptocurrency sector, you have none of those protections, not a single one. Uh, and so buyer beware when you're doing anything in cryptocurrency or any of the new uh, non uh, fiat currency of the state. Uh, and that's why uh, I think that people should be very concerned and it is buyer beware in that sector. Uh, that's why I, I, I'm very much in favor of central banks uh, accelerating their creation of digital cash and have digital cash uh, being the vehicle that uh, consumers can use to meet the needs that they're seeing in cryptocurrencies. But cryptocurrency, very dangerous. Okay, very good. Uh, next question is from Nawapurn Maharaga Kaga, who's an LSE alumni who were working at the Bank of Thailand. And they ask, 
How could fintech help in, in the current scenario of COVID, inducing, which has induced huge household debt? In the past, increased financial access led to bad financial discipline and household debt. Are there examples of fintechs that are doing work on financial literacy? And how could regulation deal with this? Is it, do I see Michael wanting to come in? Yes. Um, so this whole, this whole um, financial literacy is really an area where technology can really um, add a benefit. And here, here's the reason. Nobody likes to be put in a classroom, and I'm, I'm a university professor, so I know. Nobody <laughs> likes to be put in a classroom to learn about financial literacy. People want to be learning about this at the point of sale, at the time when they're making a decision. And what technology can do and what many startups are doing is they're incorporating education into the whole onboarding as well as uh, product selection and delivery of, of a product. So many innovative fintech companies are helping people to build their credit scores. They're helping them to understand what the limits are on their borrowing. They're helping them to increase their savings. And, and in many ways, they're trying to educate consumers towards good behavior. And I would say that many of the founders that I've met have a personal goal of helping people to live better financial lives. And as Gayla mentioned, there's a lot of mental health issues around finance and about management of debt. And so there are many startups um, here in Canada. I can think of one called IFH Lab that is basically trying to promote financial wellness and good behavior around finances so that people can no longer no longer have to be this uh, um, finances are a major source of stress. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that technology allows us to sort of help people to manage their financial lives better. It gives them tools and it also provides education at the point of sale, which is very important as opposed to getting it when you're back in university and then forgetting it. But I think also, Michael, you touched on something previously that is so true to FinTech is that they're leading with a client view first. And so when you when you talk about financial literacy, they just think that their belief is that is part of the client first view. So educate and then take them through to transaction. And we see that more and more. So whoever's asked that question, we continue to see that more and more with solutions that come to market where uh, the literacy or the education please ends up playing something up front. And even big tech, big tech, you kind of see it too. I mean, Apple launched Apple Card and the UI on how you spend, where you spend, what criteria you want to do you want to set on how much you want to spend. So much of the thought process was on the consumer view of how they actually want to utilize credit for the future, not just let's charge uh, 1999 APR and let's try to get a client in a revolve situation. That was the, that might be the secondary thought. Uh, but the former thought was how do we start with education or, or, or some level of literacy up front? And, and I think also that that whole idea of kind of reframing it, you know, you're, you're right, Michael, people don't want to sit down and do, an online course in financial literacy. But, you know, to Vinit's point, there are apps now which will say, every time you spend, why don't you round up what's left over and put it into the savings account and start to show you, you know, how your savings are going up and getting kids thinking like that. But I think also, you know, these new things like gamification and using that, you know, some companies starting to think about how do we get young people rather than making it like boring lessons about, you know, learning about finance? How do we use gamification to start getting people thinking differently 
about learning about money and about credit and about you know how interest rates work. And so I think there's there's a lot that fintech can do there, combined with things like um, virtual reality and and different types of gamification to just start you know reframing how we think about it. But I do think we do need to go all the way back to school and start you know educating people you know much younger about being financially savvy and financially aware as well as helping those people that that may have got into trouble throughout covid you know as 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 our our questioner asked you know building up debts and things like that i have two related questions to this theme one from dan fahini who's a fintech advisor he's basically asking before we give people a digital identity or a self-sovereign identity do we need to start with digital literacy and financial education delivered at the national level as almost a precondition and a related question from teresa almeida who's with the inclusion initiative at lse who asks Digital identity has the potential for including marginalized groups, in, but making ID mandatory for access to government and private sector services can end up marginalizing the most disadvantaged or those choosing to non, not participate. And this can create further barriers for participation in economic life. How do you overcome this? There will always be an analog option. That is something that, that there will always be an analog option. Um, that is something that I know DCMS is very concerned about is that uh, the penalty tax for those who decide not to be part of this. But they've always maintained that this is a voluntary program, uh, that any digital identity that's issued by the UK government is fully voluntary. So there will always remain that analog, you know, that analog path. And it's something that those of us who are in digital identity discuss frequently. We don't have a panacea solution. We're trying to figure that, that out. Um, but what we do want to make sure we do is empower each individual to be able to prove things. And by the way, I need to make this very, very clear. An identity provider will never actually reveal your personal data. It will only be proof that you meet a criteria or an attribute. So privacy is built in. It's privacy by design. Um, so hopefully there is trust in the system and we get it right as we design it, but we can also make adjustments as we go forward. Like any tech uh, build, it has to be agile and we have to be able to course correct and uh, go back and, and fix our mistakes. So this is still evolving. Um, but one thing, it will always be voluntary. It will always be about proof. It will never be about your personal data and we'll have privacy as, as um, baked in from the get-go. Uh, and again, it is about improving inclusion. And we recognize that there's always a risk of excluding those who choose not to be part of it, who can't be part of it. So analog options always have to be there. Um, okay, let me turn to a, a question okay, actually, for- I was gonna jump oh, in, I was waiting for- Of course, Brenda, Michael, go ahead. I was waiting for Brenda to speak up on this because this is obviously something that's, um, it, you know, it's, it's not just about FinTech, it's about digital identity, it's about inclusion, but you know, one of the part of the question was, should people be required to have an education before being given the option of a digital identity? I don't think we should be putting that barrier to it if people, because as, as Gayla's example of India has shown, you know, one of, one of the barriers for entry into the financial system is not having a piece of data and not having an address. And so, you know, in Canada, for example, um, homeless people were not able to get uh, support for COVID, from the COVID pandemic because they could not prove their identity, they could not receive an address, they did not have a bank account. And digital identity, which would protect people's sensitive data, 
would allow them to receive government support in that way, um, which they would otherwise not be able to get. And they could also get it in the form of like, um, you know, obviously a prepayment card that they could use um, to, to purchase food, shelter, and other alternatives. So I don't think we should be trying to set barriers to people to have a digital identity because it can open up a lot of, you know, a lot of ways for these people to actually uh, seek supports that they need. So let me turn to a question from Victor Fernandez, who's at the, uh, who's the Univall University Finance Associate Professor from Bolivia. So we've really got questions coming in from all over the world, which is wonderful. The question for all speakers is, what would be the challenges for developing countries to implement new financial technologies? Just for developing countries. I mean, I'm presuming infrastructure would be an obvious place to start. Um, but Michael, did you want to start? Well, well, I can see everybody is kind of like wanting to jump in, so I don't want to dominate. But I think, I mean, I think the example of M-Pesa shows how technology can allow you to leapfrog over a underdeveloped financial system and and provide financial services to people that don't have it. And in China, where you know billions of people are using either We WePay or WeChat as well as Alipay and, and and financial, people were able to get financial services that the traditional financial system was not providing them because it was state-owned and it was directed at state-owned companies and at, at large businesses. So let's not forget that fintech is really serving individuals and small businesses that even in countries like the UK have been excluded from, from getting services from large financial incumbents. So it's in developing economies, technology allows these people to get services that are very highly valued at an extremely low cost without having to have branches or other expensive infrastructure. So, I mean, uh, in some uh, ways, in in some ways, in some ways, the lack of infrastructure helps promote adoption of technology. And I think that, frankly, M-Pesa is one of this great example. I know, Gila, you started off with that uh, idea and it's kind of worked its way through a lot. It's a perfect example. I think if there was great infrastructure uh, in place at the time, I'm not sure M-Pesa actually evolves into what it is. So so in in many ways, the developing world, and you want to call it, I don't know, I don't sometimes don't even call it that anymore, but the developing world has this opportunity of actually more rapidly adopting technology to bring solutions to market because infrastructure helps, lack of infrastructure helps promote that uh adoption and free thinking uh to kind of break down historical uh barriers and i think it's it's not uh it's not by any surprise that you see african countries with high adoption or you see places like india and china with all of these digital payments means that frankly don't exist in the western world it's because that lack of infrastructure is actually promoted uh that whole notion of idea of breaking down uh call it the proverbial distance in between those countries uh, and, and diversity of people. I think it's, it's a needs must thing. It, it, exactly. There was a good example. Um, we did some work, the 30% club and a, and a number of big companies um, called, are you missing millions about companies being inclusive by design? And, and our report basically was telling about case studies. And one of the ones we talked about was MasterCard and Unilever and Kenyan Commercial Bank coming together. There were a lot of street vendors in, in Kenya, mainly women, you know, micro, um, micro vendors who were selling Unilever's fast moving consumer goods. 
and they couldn't grow their businesses at all. And they couldn't get any more stock because they had no credit. Everything was cash based and they didn't have any credit history and so they couldn't buy more. And, and, you know, it was, it was holding them back. So MasterCard and Unilever got together with Kenyan Commercial Bank and Unilever was able to use their payment history to Unilever to create um, some credit history. They then worked with Kenyan Commercial Bank to create some digital cards that gave them a digital credit history that then helped with their supply chain and allowed them to start to, to be able to buy more on credit and grow their businesses. So it was kind of a win-win for everyone because these female entrepreneurs were able to buy much more stock, grow their businesses. I think Unilever's sales went up by 20%. And it was this whole new, you know, digital payment history that wouldn't have existed before. So, so I do think, you know, although there can be, you know, infrastructure challenges when you compare infrastructure to what we have in the developed world, in developing countries, the kind of needs must drivers drive greater innovation than, than what we have. It's, it's kind of like in, in all these developing markets, the fact that many countries, you know, jumped straight over landlines and went straight to mobile and much more affordable mobile and, and were able to do much more than, you know, than we were able to do here. So, so I, I do think sometimes it, it, that that driver is so much stronger that it, it creates greater innovation. I mean, I think the other important, I was just going to say, the other important thing to remember is that it's also a vehicle for the government to get money to poor people. Uh, And the emergence of cash transfer schemes in over 100 developing countries has been enabled by this technology. So governments can get very, you know, cash payments into poor households very quickly. And one of the more recent innovations one has seen is that in, in the midst of a crisis like COVID, the government is able to have these payments adjust to the shock. So if a particular area is affected by COVID or by a drought, they're able to increase the cash payments to those households in response to local shocks. So again, incredibly useful social insurance enabled by fintech technologies. Richard, you want to come in? So this is all uh, possible because of the advent of the smartphone. So uh, prior to, what was it, uh, 2006, when we had the smartphone uh, uh, enter the marketplace, uh, you had no choice but to work through the the existing established uh, banking system. And so if you had no bank account and you weren't going to get a bank account, then you couldn't participate in that part of the economy. uh, So so what I would say for people in uh, developing countries, Bolivia, for example, is they're they're going to rely on the smartphone technology, uh, yeah. but I want to ex- and that's what people have been talking about here. Uh, but I want to extend it to the next level, and what they should think about from a public policy perspective, as people in, in, uh, in, uh, use their smartphones and build up deposit balances, so balances that they use for their payments, and and actually start to leave cash there. Okay, so how secure is are those cash deposits? At the, uh, at the smartphone company. And so what you saw in China uh, uh, two or three years ago, the, the, the deposits had grown to such a level, and that's outside the banking system, okay? The, the uh, Chinese government required them to, po- to put those deposits at a bank, okay? And of course, in China, the banks are state-owned, but that's irrelevant, at a regulated bank, okay? So what they have to think about from a public policy perspective perspective is the more successful their uh, non-bank digital payment uh, systems are, 
the more it's happening outside the regulated banking system and the more that makes uh, consumers vulnerable. Oh, uh, Brenda, and then I'll take the next question. Just, just to add one more point on, on that whole issue of mobile phones. And, you know, I think it is fantastic in, in developing countries how that has helped so many people. I would once again just say we can't assume that everyone has access. Um, just to bring up one other case study from our, our Missing Millions work was with, with Vodafone in emerging markets. And this was only a couple of years ago when they looked at their markets broken down by gender, they found that in their developing countries, women were 10% less likely than men to own a mobile phone, which translated into a, a mobile gender gap of 200 million women who didn't have the same ability as men to communicate, access information, learn, manage their finances, set up and run a business. And so um, a couple of years ago, they made a commitment to connect 50 million more women across emerging markets and really narrow that gender connectivity gap. And, and what they found in some of those markets was women weren't buying mobile phones as much as men because you buy them um, in some of these countries from street vendors and the vendors would then have your mobile number and be able to harass women and things. So they had to change that, first of all, so that that didn't happen. And they then set up services specifically for women. So Saki in India with location alerts, mum and baby in South Africa with healthcare and child development, reproductive health um, information, and all of these things, they made them free. And within a very short time, they connected 20 million more women. And they also ended up with 650,000 more vaccinations, um, lots of women being able to travel and move more easily. And, and obviously it, it benefited Vodafone. But unless they'd looked at that data, they wouldn't have realized that. So, so once again, all of these things are great, but I would say, you know, we really do need to, to spend the time looking and making sure that everyone has access and not just assume that in countries where there are lots of mobile phones that, you know, everybody can be benefiting from this. So, so just to, just to be the downer once again and, and bring in another example of <laughs> being cautious about it. Yeah, be vigilant, pay attention. Yeah. It's, it's, a good, um, it's a good result. But it is, but it is, Brenda. You know, Brenda, you've touched on this a few times. I think there is an aspect of when we're designing solutions uh, that you do need to have uh, diversity of mind or or people or background, whatever it is, when you're designing those solutions, it's, it's almost paramount these days. And, and whether that's in your case, the one you're talking about is female diversity or it's minority diversity, or it's, 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 it's Gila, what you were talking about at the beginning on, on, on mental health. Uh, you almost need to have a, a contingent of your team that's made up of those people to speak for that, to speak for that population. And it, I, I, I would say historically, and I'm speaking from a financial services perspective, it hasn't been as focused on. I think we're really mm -hmm. starting to see it emerge now as to how important that is for the future. Like, like yeah. the example, like when we're designing immigrant banking solutions, we're like, well, we need people who understand the Chinese, the Filipino and the Indian experience design an immigrant banking solution. Historically, that wouldn't have been the case. And you can think about what the result of the historical compared to the result of the current day situation is. It's, it's a big, big difference. It's why diversity in the people who work in these fintech organizations is so 
an important precondition for being effective yeah. at, at including all customers. Let me turn to Abby Lam, who's a high school student from Hong Kong, uh, who asks, would blockchain technology in the financial market and the development of cryptocurrencies in fintechs threaten the dominating position of central banks? Uh, yes. So okay. uh, it, it clearly has. And uh, we've clearly seen, if you like, a backlash or uh, a response from, from governments who are looking at what are developing what they call their central bank digital currencies. Okay. So, uh, you know, when, when Facebook and a consortium promoted a, a product that was called Libra, which was a form of stablecoin that would allow people to send uh, money using Facebook Messenger as well as other technologies very rapidly, it was, there was enormous pushback from the traditional financial system as well as from regulators. But what, what, what I think was missed in that whole um, incident was that Facebook and others were addressing a need, which is the need to be able to transfer money quickly, safely, and at low cost across borders. So governments have been very slow because they still see borders and they see their, their jurisdiction as ending where their borders end. And what we need is we need something that allows people who are increasingly mobile and people who have families or engaged in sending remittances, we need to provide them with a low-cost, secure way for them to do that, um, which has not existed. So yes, digital cryptocurrencies are, are filling that gap, even though, as, as Richard pointed out, it is a bit of the Wild West, you have to be very cautious, and there is a kind of a high hurdle of security if you want to use those. The solution, of course, would be to have some well-regulated uh, and safe and secure form of digital money and earlier, Galen mentioned micropayments. This is another thing that you cannot really do with the large uh, payment systems that we have now is, is reward people in for very, very small, um, you know, uh, I, I, we, we had a discussion about musicians earlier, paying micro royalties to musicians whose music is being streamed, for example, is something that our, our traditional payment system, it's just not economic and technology can make this possible. Um, and I'm not sure how it's gonna happen, but it's not necessarily only gonna be governments that provide that solution. And can I just yeah, bring in on the blockchain? So there's a two-parter here, there's a blockchain. So blockchain is a technology, decentralized uh, ledgers. It's a fantastic technology. Uh, four years ago, everybody said it was gonna change the world and uh, you know radically change everything. Mm, four years later, it hasn't really happened. So it, it, goes, it goes back to Michael and my point is that technology itself is not a strategy, it's a tool. So blockchain is a fantastic tool and it is being built out into a variety of different applications which may ultimately change the world, I don't know. But you, must, you always should differentiate blockchain from cryptocurrency, quite different. So I've got two related questions here which I think I'll take as the final questions and I'll give all the panel a chance to say something in response to the questions and any final remarks they might want. The questions are, are really about, uh, about exclusion and inclusion. So one from Damien Lamas who asks, how will regulation overcome silos where some countries have digital identities and others don't? And from Susan Scott, that not-for-profit financial institutions like community banks have played an important role in financial inclusion. Without the capacity to invest in fintech, 
Will they diminish? And if so, what about the well-being of the customers they serve? So really a question of how is the industry evolving? Who's going to be included? Who's going to not be included? And what do we do about that? So maybe I will uh, start with uh, with Gela and then Brenda, Vinit, and then I'll give the authors the last word, Richard and Michael. Goodness. Um, or I can start with Brenda if you prefer. I, I sense no, Brenda's no, <laughs> If Brenda, Brenda, go right ahead. I've got to think about this. <laughs> okay, Brenda, you go for it, if you don't mind. Do you know, I, I'm still thinking about it as well. So, that, so I can jump in, Brenda. If, yeah, uh, go ahead. I got it. I got it. Uh, then you guys can can take it at the it's end. A team I think, effort. Yeah, exactly. I think, okay, so so the first question was how will regulation overcome silos where, where some countries have digital identities and, and others don't? <laughs> the interesting thing and I, and I and I think Gila referred to it in a different in, in kind of a different way I don't look at the end of the day countries are going to have both digital and analog some are going to move faster some won't move, move faster some may not adopt uh, that's the thing <laughs> that's the thing we have today is 200 plus different countries on earth with with sometimes very similar thinking and many times very different thinking I think there will always be solutions uh, for those others like I don't think the whole world's going to move on to a, a, a common digital identity platform. Uh, I won't even say, I'd probably say anytime ever, <laughs> but uh, but I don't think it's going to happen. I think countries will decide and uh, and you're going to have differences and, and those interoperable differences are where countries will figure out how to work with one another. Like, like I guess there's some standardization to ID via passports today uh, and there's some interoperability, but passports are different in every different country and the requirements to get them are all different. Uh, so I think you use that as a framework and the future, the future will change uh, in that means. Now, the second one was again, Manoj, tell me, remind me. The community oh, thanks. thanks. Yeah, this is a really interesting one because I do really agree with this, that, that community <laughs> banks have played this role historically, not in all countries, but in obviously the Western world, you see some of this uh, being played. But I would say that one thing that, uh, that I, I want to say it's not uh, always, but tech, fintech especially, they seem to want to lead with both doing something good for the world as well as finding a proposition that's economical. And they're trying to use that more and more, not all of them, but in the forefront to say, how can we think about things like the underserved and how can we create solutions? So frankly, I, I, I think it's just evolving down that path so that these companies are actually thinking about the underserved maybe even more, frankly, broadly than historically has been thought of. I, I would agree with that. I think um, on, on both points, I mean, first of all, I think, you know, some of the examples that, that we've all talked about in terms of fintechs that are doing good things, many of them have partnered up with credit unions and, and with charities and, and things like that. And I think because fintechs tend to be um, set up by, you know, the younger generation, there is a lot more discussion about purpose. I mean, this is something that, that, that I work with, with my clients with, with a lot um, on. And I think purpose is coming into it just much more than we've ever heard before. So I, I do think there's going to be lots more opportunity for fintechs to partner with those community, community banks and, and to want to do that 
and also probably to, to find really cost effective ways to do it. So, you know, I don't know if, if it's going to be something that is necessarily going to be regulated or forced, but I think it will probably start to happen quite naturally. Maybe I'm just being optimistic. I think in terms of, of you know, cross-border digital identities and things, I mean, I, I think it's going to be hugely challenging because if you think about GDPR and the challenges that we that we have right now and, and cultural differences, I mean, every country has very different views about what is reasonable in terms of data, what you can ask, what you can hold, how you can do things. And if I think about one of the things I spend a lot of time on with my clients is global companies trying to get a fix on their diversity data across the world. So once you move outside of the UK, even within Europe, trying to ask questions about diversity dimensions is really, really challenging because it's legally different in every country. So some countries you can't ask questions and other countries you can, but then there's also cultural nuances as well about what's acceptable and what isn't. So, you know, if, if it's really hard to do those basic things, I think it's going to be very challenging to be able to get, you know, most big countries around the world to find global standards and, and comfort that they can find to move across borders. And so um, it, it, it's going to be really important. And I think it's something that we need to do, but, but I do think it's, it's going to take a lot of time. And once again, the word trust, you know, really trying to get countries working together to build trust in that front. I think enough has been said about the challenge of uh, global interoperable digital identity. It is absolutely culturally relevant to the market. Uh, there will be aspects of your data that will be universally portable, but it won't be the entirety of your digital identity. Um, so I don't think that that question has an answer. Uh, it certainly won't have a, a framework of an answer for the next couple of decades. But it is something to think about, and it's something that a lot of people are thinking about right now, how to get as much out of a digital identity that makes it portable and self-sovereign. Um, but again, we don't have answers, so it's, it's, it's still in the conceptual phase. I think about community banks and I think about um, alternative providers, and I primarily look at their tech suppliers. There are a number of core systems that are partnering with fintechs and are providing the digital capabilities that, that serve as the, the core banking system for those community banks. I have a credit union account back in the States and I happen to know who their uh, core provider is and I know the functionalities that that core provider continues to offer. And it and, and also enhances uh, their, their solutions for the 10,000 community banks that exist across the United States. Um, they're still keeping up with the Joneses. It's just a different level and a different scale, uh, but they're not missing out on those offerings. And the nice part about FinTech is it is not necessarily about the community banks. It's about the partnerships and the value addition that those FinTechs can offer to the basic uh, current account that a community bank will, will provide. So if I want to have a balance or a budgeting app, I can do that and still have my banking information attached to it. If I want to do charity spend, or if I want to do uh, a sweeping payment into a savings account, it doesn't matter if I have a community bank or if I have a big, um, a big high street bank. 
my data is portable and the fintech will integrate via API with any one of those providers. So it really isn't about the community bank itself being excluded from the fintech revolution. It's about the fact that that, that fintech revolution is being brought to those community banks so that everyone has access to those additional value propositions the fintech brings to market. And it's all done via an application um, interface, an API. So if we think about how things are being built, I, I don't I don't see a problem for community banks. I think they're going to still keep up with the Joneses. They'll just have a different array of partnerships across fintech than a big bank would. Okay. Michael, and then I'll give Richard the last word. Yeah, so thank you. Um, I, th I think it's important whenever I talk about fintech, I, 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 tell my, I, I tell people to take a step back and recognize that the whole economy is becoming digital and society is becoming digital. And that when we look at fintech, we're just looking at an application of how uh, technology is changing one industry, financial services. But really, the transformation that we're seeing is every part, every industry, and it's, it's also broader than just the economy. It's also society. And, um, you know, I share with Brenda, like, a concern for sustainability and environment. And, and technology is, is playing a role there. Now, when it comes to what I think is happening, we've seen, we've seen other waves of technology um, that have transformed the financial services industry. The last one being, of course, the introduction of computers and all that brought with us. I think what we need to realize is that technology doesn't provide all, only solutions. It creates problems. I think we've highlighted that a couple of times. But it does, it, what, what we do see, what is really distinctive now is that we're seeing technologies providing a, uh, solutions to customers that are customer focused, that are reducing the cost and improve, improving the services. And so my hope is that what all of these technologies um, which are going to be, uh, we require more regulations as well, um, they are going to really make the financial services industry work more for people and move it into the background of people's consciousness so that finance can no longer be like the center of our lives. It becomes a kind of a background, a service, so that we can go on living our lives, okay? So that we no longer have to think about banks. We no longer have to think about, you know, these, these concerns because that's not really where we should be, we should be focusing our energy. Okay. Richard. I think we lost Richard. I Did we? Know. Okay. I no longer Sorry. see him on our screens. Okay. Then, um, then let me uh, just draw it to a close. We are at a very interesting moment of innovation and transformation. And I think the conversation today has highlighted the opportunities and the risks. I think the tone of the conversation was one in which the opportunities overshadow the risks, but also there was a distinct awareness that we need to manage these risks because otherwise, like many technological innovations, there is a risk that it, it divides people and leaves some people behind. And I think with this technology, there is a real opportunity for fintech to be a truly inclusive, uh, inclusive innovation. And I think all of you highlighted the opportunities that that could happen if we are vigilant about, about some of these risks. So I wanted to thank Richard and Michael for writing the book and to thank the panelists for doing a wonderful job of bringing out the issues. And also for all of those in the audience, from Bolivia to Hong Kong and everything in between, uh, you asked us some terrific questions and I encourage you to join us again at the LSE for future events uh, in our public lecture series. So thanks to all of you and, uh, and 
here's the book again, just in case you want to, you want to, to read it and get a copy and uh, everyone take care.